0: Hi, I'm Hallie, and I want to welcome you to the Odd Life Podcast, that's spelled A-W-E-D, which stands for Awake, Well, and Empowered. In this space, you will hear inspirational stories, candid and heartfelt conversations, as well as advice from experts, all with the intention of helping women like you live Odd AF. Because I believe the more of us that live awake, well, and empowered, the better this world will be. So thank you for being here and welcome to Your Odd Life. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the podcast. I am your host, Hallie. Uh, Thank you for being here. I am going to talk about another book today. If you were here with us last season, you know that I had four books I discussed that were books that could change your life. I think this may be another one to add to that list. And we read this book in July as part of the book club. It is called The Wisdom of Your Body by Dr. Hilary McBride. I have many notes attached. And I want to just go through it just a little bit of some things I really felt were super interesting and really great takeaways, as well as give you just enough to hopefully entice you to pick this book up yourself and read it. I think this is one of those books that most people should read in their lifetime. Because of how it can impact you and get you back into the living the life that you want. And I say that because I think so many of us are out of touch. We're living in a little bit of, I'll not say la la land, but just living in this virtual world. We're on our computers all the time. We're on social media. We are, you know, texting our friends on our phones. We're not actually out there living our lives. We're experiencing kind of this weird, like I said, virtual life and I am guilty of this. I spend a lot of time at my home. I spend a lot of time diving into books. I spend a lot of time uh, researching and trying to get guests on the podcast. And the next thing you know, I've not been outside my house all day. And I'm missing that. I'm missing the sense of being out in the world and alive. And that's a huge part of the odd life is to be awake, well, and empowered. That's part of it is being completely present in my life and within my body and to feel alive. And I want to get into this here in a second. And this really does piggyback off of the last episode we had with Chrissy Powers. She is again, a licensed therapist and embodiment coach. If you haven't listened go back and listen to all the things she talks about, we don't realize that we're disembodied because maybe it's all we've ever known. And I'm going to get into this in a second, like what embodiment means, what disembodiment means. But I really feel like this is a super important book, or at least the topic of embodiment. Whether or not you like to read or not, find something that deals with embodiment that can help you get back in touch with your body. So let's start out first, like, what is it? What is embodiment? What does that mean? Uh, There's a doctor she quotes in the book, Dr. Niva Piran. I hope I'm saying her name right. N-I-V-A-P-I-R-A-N. So what is embodiment? embodiment is seen as a feeling, a sense of positive connection or being one with our body. It's where we can experience emotion as anchored in our body. We can care, and protect our bodies. We can use our body as a source of wisdom while we're out interacting with the world. That is what Dr. Nivapirin says embodiment is. Okay. So now what is disembodiment? Disembodiment is seen as an experience of disconnection from our body. When this happens, our body is a place where we feel disempowered and constricted, as well as lacking in in competence, safety, and presence. So how do you know which one you are? Do you uh, criticize yourself based on cultural standards? That's disembodied. Do you feel shame about your body and choose exercise, food, rest, or care based on that shame? Disembodied. Or do you move freely in the world because you challenge external appearance standards? That's embodied. Do you connect with others and the rights of others while experiencing your own individuality? That's embodied. Do you trust your body to tell you what it needs and that it is inherently good?
1: That's embodied.
0: So guess what? You're normal if you answered yes to the first two and no to the last three, because most of us probably feel that way. I know I do. But that's what this book is here to help us do, is help us flip those answers. Let's get into some examples of what each of those things are. So other behaviors of disembodiment, maybe self-harm, you forget or disregard our bodily needs. I mean, maybe you've been so busy working and you forget to eat lunch or you are not drinking enough water. You're drinking coffee instead to keep yourself awake, but you know that you should be reaching for that glass of water. That's me. Uh, trying to make our bodies disappear or conform. We get on social media, we see what is out there,
1: and we don't look that way. And that can be
0: hard to see what's accepted as right You know, the pretty bodies, the pretty faces, the athletic looks, the muscles, whatever, and then we are less than because we don't have those things. Are we trying to follow a diet rather than our own hunger cues? Are we pushing our bodies to the limit when even doing so would cause us pain or injury? The right way to work out. This is I'm gonna say it. Crossfit. I can't tell many people I know. They have a surgeries because they do CrossFit. They didn't listen to their bodies. I'm not saying CrossFit's bad. What I'm saying is, is you you do it because of the pressure of keeping up on a workout or whatever, and then next thing you know, you've torn your shoulder. You have to get a knee replaced. I mean, there's a lot of things that can happen if you don't listen to your body. And I see that as one of the areas that way you could do that exercise for sure. I don't really ever remember being embodied, honest to God. I think I've been a disembodied my entire life. I think back about uh, growing up and when I hit puberty, I was in a thing called drill team. Drill team was not quite like dance team. Drill team was very, uh, <laughs> Oh my gosh. I am beating myself for sure. Drill team is like, everything was like in a line. Everyone had the same body movements and I don't know. It's hard to explain. Drill team. You're my age. You know what I'm talking about. And we're wearing leotards and tights in front of our whole student body for halftimes or things like that. And you realize, oh wait, I don't like my Julie eyes. I don't like to look this way in front of my peers. Are they going to think I'm fat? And then I started going to the tanning bed. That was a big thing. Tanning beds became a thing when I was uh high school. But I looked like I had just come back from a tropical vacation in the middle of winter. I did not care that it looked weird. If you've ever seen, uh, is it something about Mary with Cameron Diaz, the older gal that's outside uh, with the tinfoil and on her deck constantly and her hair's bleach blonde and she's got this fake tan. I wasn't very far off. I wasn't very far off, and I did that because it helped me feel better about myself. I felt like it hid my flaws, and now I'm paying for it by, you know, dealing with all the skin issues um, over time. Is what it is. Can't take it back to the past, but I know that's part of being disembodied. I was not happy with who I was, based on what I thought people were looking at. And judging me on because we see people comment about someone's body oh my gosh she's got a great ass like her legs are so muscular or whatever and it's all about appearance and no one ever says to you like oh my gosh she is so smart i bet she's got the best personality like that never happened (laughs) never any comment was made about their appearance so then next thing you know that becomes our our standard as okay i have to look a certain way so I think that's something I've carried my entire life, having to look a certain way and ne- not that I've ever achieved it, never achieved it. I think maybe one time I hired a personal trainer and for eight weeks I worked really hard. And in my late thirties I had the best body I'd ever had. I looked great in the outside, uh, didn't last, couldn't last. That was not sustainable. So I don't know really what the point of that was. It wasn't a lifestyle change. It was a, restrictive diet and it was hardcore working out. And I got to a place where I could be proud of what I accomplished, but it was not maintainable. And clearly I've gone back to kind of my old standard, but I don't think it's something I've still ever reconciled with. There's always this thought about, okay, if I do this, then I can hopefully look like this. Still an issue to this day. So I, I, for one, am really sick of thinking of myself in that way. And to me, that's not imp- empowered living if I continue to see myself as always needing to be improved physically. I don't mean internally physically, like my lungs, my liver being healthy, my heart being healthy. I'm talking about the physical appearance on the outside. So I know that I'm not alone in this and it's the work we have to do. And that's why I'm reading this book. And I think it's going to be helpful for a lot of those things. Uh, She does share there's three different areas of each, like three domains, she calls it. So there's the mental, there's the physical, and there's the social part of each of these. And so let me kind of share what she talks about a little bit. So let's get into the mental for both. For embodied, it's the ability to challenge societal ideas about the body. It's the ability to challenge rigid gender stereotypes. And it's the ability to freely express ourselves. So what does disembodied look like in the mental domain? It means when we are buying into this constraining social ideas or what she calls mental corseting. This happens when we have cultural distortions that have become so integrated in our thoughts that we lose our ability to challenge them. So as a result, we self-silence. We rarely express our needs. We have emotions that are going on that we deny. And this happens a lot in early development, especially in girls. The mental is just there from the very beginning, like I said my example earlier. Okay, so the physical, what does embodied mean when in the physical domain? We feel physical freedom, and that includes physical safety, care, respect, movement, rest, and competence, and freedom to accept without shame, our physical desires, appetites, and developmental changes, so in the space of physical freedom, we can engage in physical activity that feels free and expansive and unrestricted by society's standards. We can exist in spaces where our bodies feel safe. Does that sound familiar of what's going on in the political climate right now? What's happening in the world, especially United States? Physical freedom is important to be embodied. We can tune into ourselves and provide self-care. We seek out pleasure that's connected to our desires. That's what physical freedom means. So, in the physical domain of disembodiment, it means we feel physically corseted. And the body feels unsafe, neglected, or violated. There is sex based discrimination or gender scripts that don't allow us to live in freedom. So, for example, gender stereotyping, they don't allow us to live in freedom. So, gender stereotyping looks like this Girls, should sit with our legs crossed, and boys should only do boy things male oriented activities like throwing a football or playing with toy trains so we 're seeing a lot of that happening it's it 's given to us in the very beginning. If you watch a commercial for cleaning products on TV, tell me how many men do you see on the screen that are mopping their floors? Not a one. It is given to us in commercials left and right of what men should be doing and what women should be doing. Men barbecue at the tailgate and women are there picking up and cleaning up afterwards. Men are drinking beer by the fire pit. Women are mopping the kitchen floor. That's what we're talking about. So then there's the social domain. And when you are embodied in the social domain, you have social power. We have the freedom to be other. Uh, We can stand up to inequity. And something I think Hillary says in the book that I think is really important, when we have social power, it doesn't just mean for ourselves. She says that having social power also means having a responsibility to acknowledge our privilege and the social systems in which we have benefited and widen those systems to include everyone. Disembodied in the social domain means social disempowerment, the opposite, being treated with prejudice or objectified when we feel we need to use our appearance to help us reclaim a social status. And so you can see how disembodiment is running rampant throughout our society. Because I think we can see a lot more examples
1: of disembodiment than we can embodiment,
0: at least in the world that I live in. There's things I know. That I have used in the past to also stay disembodied, so not only just the the appearance of my body it's been also not really feeling feelings and we 'll get into feelings here in a little bit, but you know i've used alcohol to stay out of my body. I have tried to avoid. My family. There's a lot of family dysfunction we had growing up, and so I would go off to my best friend's house all the time. I felt safe with her. I went up to college, and again, didn't know really who I was. Didn't feel comfortable as me, and therefore turned to alcohol. Uh, I ignored my needs, sleep, <laughs> uh, water, um, time. You know, to just be with myself. And I think I punished myself quite a bit over the years between not eating correctly, working out in ways that weren't great for me, using caffeine as a way to get through life. Uh, I didn't listen to my body, didn't listen to the gut reactions to things. I just would go, okay, and go along with society and go along with what my friends were telling me to do or where I should go for this and who I should hang out with. And I will tell you, I put myself in some very awkward positions. And there have been um assaults that have happened to me because of me not listening to myself. I can go back and look and see all these times in my life that I was disembodied, and it's been a theme for sure. Uh, another section of this book she talks about that's really, I think important, and it's the one that she talks about stress and trauma and how we can heal from it with Chrissy last week. she's a trauma therapist. she's mentioned some things about trauma and how they keep us trapped because we believe a story about ourselves and healing is such an important part of us getting past all this. But the problem sometimes is stress. And when I say stress, I mean that it's an activation of the mind and body in response to experiencing a stressor that is perceived as a threat. That's about the perception. It may not actually be a threat, but we don't feel safe. Our dad comes home and he's drunk and he's yelling at your mom. You don't feel safe. You have a teacher that yells at you in class because you walked in late. You don't feel safe. Even though you're a crowd of people, you know she's not going to attack you, but you still don't feel very safe. There's a, a gazillion stressors we could talk about that don't allow us to be safe. But it's all about a perception. So, in that moment, do you really need to have that fight or flight reaction? No, you don't. But our body does that. Heartbeat gets faster we panic, whatever it may be, we run away. Maybe we physically go to a different space. Maybe you got back out of class and left because you were so embarrassed and you felt just overwhelmed. That's our body's reaction. And it's great when it's an actual threat. But when we don't have an actual threat and we keep doing it over and over again, we overload our nervous system. And that's what leads us to getting stuck on our trauma. And We talk about trauma. There's a big trauma and there's little trauma. And one of the things that I know is more impactful is the little trauma from just things I've read. It's the emotional abuse, it's bullying, it's harassment, it's uh, a job change, it's a messy breakup. Those things are all considered little traumas. Of course, we know the big traumas are accidents. Maybe you've been in a war, it's life threatening, you've been in a horrible car accident. Those things are big traumas and those are expected, but it's the little ones that we keep having over and over again that are giving us those daily stressors. It's like what that death by a thousand cuts. That's kind of it. Those are the thousand cuts. And one of the things she shares in the book is about the staircase of a stress response. So the top step, you're, you're safe. You're feeling great. Everything's good. The next step down is, okay, something's happening. And you're realizing it's not okay, but yet you're judging what's going on around you by everybody else's reactions. Like, okay, is everyone else reacting this way? Are my goods? You're kind of starting to take notice of what's happening around you. Like you gauge it off of people around you. And so this is like subconscious, kind of like under the surface, kind of feeling of a threat. And then there's the next step. Step three is called mobilization. It's where you have that fight or flight response. And this triggers a release of these stress hormones. And then when you've done that over and over again, eventually what happens is your body goes into shutdown mode. And that's the next step. That's the final step as we shut down. This is where disassociation happens. Our nervous system decides we can do nothing. We have no other options. It's where we give up. And this is where depression comes in. And it's often a result of the shutdown response. So the growth process then is to, Get yourself to go back up those stairs. And this is really helpful because, okay, yes, I understand all those things. This is where I, I've, I've seen myself go down this path. Okay, but how do we get ourselves out? And so growth looks like being able to help climb your way back up that staircase to safety. The goal is to get back to safety where we can create and, and connect with people and where we can feel playful and joyful again. That's the goal is to get back to that safety step. So what she says is, let's say you're in shutdown mode, the very bottom step of the staircase, what does it look like to go back up to mobilization? That's movement. So rather than before you ran away, you did something to get out of that situation. Now, maybe just the need for movement, exercise, stretching, uh, even just standing and st- shaking your limbs, dancing, anything that helps you release that stored energy. And this is what's important is that that movement signals to our body to stop making stress hormones. That's huge. One of the things she talks about in the book is her own experience with being in a traumatic car accident. And she explains what happened to her after the accident is that she started shaking violently. She couldn't control it, It started shaking. So that's usually what happens going through this fight or flight response. Your body has to release that stored energy. So now as we're trying to consciously get ourselves out of the shutdown mode, we have to shake our body to release the energy that's been stored in us that we're not allowing to get out of our body. We've gone through something that's traumatic and we've stored it. We have to release it, to release that energy. So that's what she's talking about. And then getting the next rung is this engaging with other people. So what that means is maybe talking about how we're feeling, maybe setting boundaries. And that's the healthy way to respond. And that's where we get back to that feeling of safety. I think this is really important to know as well, is what happens if we can't get back to safety? Because those things aren't available to us. Think about COVID-19 and dealing with being stuck at home with an abusive spouse. There is no place of safety. How do we handle that? Hillary says that one of the reasons trauma and depression are so prevalent is that our social context actually prevents us from listening to our bodies and our need to release the trauma we were carrying. We're not able to, kind of, you know, quote unquote, shake it out. And not because of a tight seatbelt belt or the airbag has gone off. It's because the constrictions and inhibitions around emotional expression, around race, gender scripts, those things are making it impossible for us to heal because those seems dangerous or untrustworthy to do those things, to try and find a way to release this energy. There's no place of safety for a lot of people. And we get this message all the time, mind over matter, toughen up, work harder. We push ourselves so much because that's what's implied that will get us that next promotion, a raise, success, the good life. We praise people for for sticking to a strict diet, and having that kind of self-discipline, and it's something to envy. You know, if we never feel safe, our trauma gets stuck because our suffering never ends. And I think that's what I recognized in myself was I'm constantly trying to look a certain way physically, my, like my physical body, That I
1: always feel like I'm in the state of suffering. What if I just stopped? Stop trying to look a certain way.
0: And just be thankful for the body that I have. That I can walk, that I can run, that I have working ankles, that I have working knees, that I, I can stretch and I can sit on the floor with my dogs and, and play with them. Being thankful for how it moves. Because I think I've been in this mindset of it's never enough. Keep pushing till, until you look a certain way, and then you'll be able to take a rest. Then you'll be okay
1: then you've made it. And it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And it's really hard
0: when maybe the messages are coming from inside the house. You know, maybe we're constantly being hurt by the people that are supposed to love us and we're supposed to trust them.
1: That's hard. And when you can't feel safe
0: amongst people that are supposed to love and you know care for you. What do you do? So she gets into that with the book. Another thing that I didn't really think about until reading this book was that the memory of trauma affects us on a genetic level. Let that sink in for a second. So let me read this to you. So for example, The scientific community has explored epigenetics or stress-related genetic changes since the 1940s when children conceived during wartime famine in the Netherlands were found to be at an increased risk for certain biomedical conditions such as diabetes. What? Just being conceived during the wartime caused those things to happen. And more recently, Research has also identified a connection between epigenetic changes and fear and the stress response. So for example, what was dangerous to one generation can activate and deactivate certain genes in a way that's passed down to the next few generations, predisposing them to instinctively fear what was dangerous to their parents and grandparents. This can range from specific traumatic events to more widespread cultural trauma. Sit with that for a second. How many of you have parents that fought in a war or grandparents that fought in a war? I had a grandparent that fought in World War II, and my father fought in Vietnam.
1: I had a mother that was verbally abused by a husband, emotionally neglected, emotionally abused, as well as by her parents and extended family.
0: She's pregnant with children. And she was constantly under stress. My father couldn't hold down a job when she was pregnant. I mean, insane. So maybe there's things I've reacted to that are not even mine. I don't know where it comes from. And that may be happening to you as well. So this is, I think, really important work to to figure out because it may not even be our trauma. Like, oh, I don't have trauma. Maybe it's not yours. And maybe you're not realizing some of the responses you have into certain things are not because of what's happened to you. It's because of what's happened to your parents or your grandparents or somebody else in your family. Something to think about. What Hillary suggests to do and how to heal from this is, of course, working with a trauma therapist to help you get back to that place of safety for sure. Another thing is to talk to your body. And she gives a really great example, like a script you you can say. It's, I know you're feeling scared right now. This makes sense in the big picture. Even when it's hard to make sense of it right now, what's happening is just your survival response in action. You are working so hard to stay alive and safe. and I'm so proud of you for that. You're doing such a great job of getting me ready just in case something awful is going to happen. Again, thank you. You are so good. And this is what you can say next, but you are safe now. And as soon as you're ready, it's okay to let go and come back and to rest. I will stay with you the entire time. We will do it together one breath, one day at a time, as long as it takes. So it's almost like showing up for yourself as your higher self and saying, we've got this. Like if you could imagine like a best friend, what would she say to you? This is what she'd say. I'm here. I've got you. You're safe. You can hang out with me. Here's a hug. If we don't have that in our life from somebody else, we got to be that for ourselves. So we're our own place of safety. Another thing she says we can do is learn about grounding and orienting. This helps you come back to the present. She says like touching things, what's on your desk or your dog and saying out loud things that you see, looking outside your window, tree, grass, chair, bird it orients you to, I'm I'm here. This is where I'm at right now. I'm not lost in my trauma. I'm not out there reliving a a past experience. I am right here right now, and it is no longer part of my life. Uh, She said, going outside, walking in the grass, taking off her shoes, that's considered grounding. Going for a walk in nature, you'll hear this um, being said, it's called forest bathing. Going out in nature helps reground you, brings you back to the present. Another thing about this is really interesting. She says to practice having choice and power over your own body. And the example she gave was yoga as a great option. If you remember ever taking a yoga class? She will give you, or he will give you a position and they'll say, well, if this doesn't feel good, then maybe choose this or choose this. You get to choose the position you're in, the posture, the pose how far you want to take it, how easy you want to make it for yourself, how comfortable you want it to make it for yourself. Yoga is a great way to do that. You give choice. And so if you have maybe a video that you watch on YouTube, Pilates, yoga, whatever, a lot of times you'll get choices. And and that's one of the things she says you can easily do to give yourself power over your body, help you choose how you feel. Uh, She also says you can use your imagination or memory to help shift your physical and emotional state. So she wants you to think about a time when you felt safe. Who are you with? Imagine being in that person's presence again. Maybe it's visualizing a task that helps you feel calm or picturing a person's face that you love. And then another solution would be to update your interpretation of your stress response. So maybe you look at that stress response as being helpful versus negative. You can thank it for helping keep you safe. And then you tell your body, Hey, I'm safe. I'm good. And now you can, you can step aside. So it's helping you see that not everything is super stressful and Hey, this showed up, this helped me feel this way. I'm good. Now it can, it can move on. And then also she mentions to learn your own staircase response. Like what, happens on each one of those stairs for you. When you go down to the next step from safety down to down to the next step, what do you do? What are your responses? And then what can you put in place? What people, situations, or environments can help you move back up the ladder? What can you put in place to help you get back to safety? And then a huge one that we all can do no matter where we are is breathe. We can use our breathing to regulate and shift our state. Uh, There's a thing called your vagus nerve. When you breathe, you can activate the vagus nerve. That's spelled V-A-G-U-S. It helps us regulate the nervous system, helps us calm back down. So there's all kinds of things called nasal breathing where you can um, inhale in one nostril, exhale out the other. Box breathing, where you inhale for five seconds, you hold at the top for five seconds, you release for five seconds, and then hold it at the bottom, hold it empty for five seconds. So those are some things that we can do, some breathing exercises. And then just practice going slow. Doing things in small doses are better. Not having to try and tackle it all at one time, just little bits at a time. What is the thing that's most affecting you? Start there. And then work your way to the next thing and the next thing. But start in small doses so you don't overwhelm yourself. What's another thing she's talking about? Body neutrality. This is a thing I hadn't really heard of before. I thought was super helpful. Is you've heard of body negativity and then body positivity. It's hard to go from shame and hating your body to all of a sudden being positive about it. It's a big leap. And that's why a lot of us don't get there. Because it's too big of a leap. So she says... Consider body neutrality, so this is how she explains body neutrality. It is an invitation to consider that our values, strengths, and personhood are separate from our appearance and from how others or we ourselves have evaluated our appearance, which explains why we have such a hard time getting to body positivities. We were never given an example we were
1: not role modeled that we were never taught that. The
0: same goodness that's out there in the world is also here in this body. We became so fixated on appearance and negative body images because we just had nothing to show us otherwise. so Treasuring our bodies in a way that extends beyond appearance, who are we inside? Are we smart? Are we funny? Are we caring? Are we empathetic? Are we
1: strong like it's It's important to
0: to look at those things and recognize that in this space, in this breath I'm taking right now, that I have all these things. I have autonomy, I have agency, I have power, I have creativity, I have strength, I have
1: all those other traits and it's good.
0: Appearance is not even in the picture. And that's what can help us get to body neutrality where it doesn't even it doesn't matter. It doesn't even connect to how you value yourself as a person. I thought that was really helpful to have that as a tool. She also had a really good analogy that she said uh, that you can consider yourself that of being an artist versus the medium. Like we are the artist, we get to choose the medium. We are not the medium, we are not the red marker. So we have choices. So maybe the red marker to you means negative self-talk or self-shaming. We can put down that marker and pick up another color. We are not the red marker. We can maybe pick up a paintbrush or some chalk. I love that analogy because we can literally take that and visualize it. When you do something to yourself, you tell yourself, God, I wish you wouldn't eat that stupid cookie or whatever. Put down the marker, change it, change the verbiage. What, What can you say instead?
1: One cookie man, that that cookie
0: tasted amazing. I'm So glad I had a chance to taste that. My taste buds are lit right now because of that cookie. That's something else you can do instead of that stupid conversation with yourself about, okay, now I have to go work out and do this and do that because now I'm going to end up gaining weight because I ate these cookies. We know that's totally false. We know that, right? It's being able to shift and look at yourself as the one that gets to choose. I really like chapter five is a really important chapter about feeling feelings. She says, looking at emotions as doorways, invitations, teachers to help us understand ourselves better. And I can tell you by not drinking alcohol anymore, by living more of a sober life, that has helped tremendously. There's things though that I've put in place that are not helping me like social media. And going through menopause, those have thrown me for a loop. But not drinking—that's was that's a go-to a lot of times when we felt frustrated or wanted to fit in or wanted to relax. There's ways that helped you create feelings. You wanted to feel a certain way, so then you could create it through drinking alcohol. Or if you were frustrated with your kids, how much mommy wine talk do we need to hear about? If you're frustrated with your kids? Share some wine with your friends. If you're Uh, Frustrated with your boss at at work, go have beers with your coworkers afterwards. I mean, how many of us are getting this message constantly that alcohol is always the answer to negative feelings? So, for me, not drinking anymore made me deal with my shit. And I could feel stuff again. And you may have heard this many times over. It's like when you stop drinking, it's like the light bulb goes on. Everything's in brighter colors. It goes from black and white to Color. And I can say that's something that happens with the emotions. It's you feel a lot more. And that's a good thing because emotions tell us stuff. Like she said, it helps us learn about ourselves. They're teachers. And so many of us are not taught how to handle and regulate these emotions. I mean, that is our whole mental health issue in this country for sure. And there's a quote she put in there. That was really important. I think we heal
1: when we can be with what we feel. And I think culture today, society today, and I think it has been for a while, is to ignore all of it. Ignore your feelings. Do not deal with them. Do not talk about it.
0: And it's, it's done in a very subliminal way. What is emotional regulation? It is our ability to notice, manage, and respond to emotions effectively and appropriately given our context. And it helps prevent and treat mental health issues. We do better academically. We parent better when we're emotionally regulated. I can't tell you how many times I yelled at my kids about the dumbest shit because I was already like at level nine of level 10 for the day. I hadn't dealt with my own emotions. I hadn't gone and done a little bit of breathing, a little meditation, gone for a walk. So I took it out on them instead because,
1: you know, they looked their brother wrong. We
0: have more peaceful relationships because we're dealing with our stuff. We're not taking it out on each other. You know, the boss at work pissed you off, but you come home and yell at your
1: wife or the kids or the dog or whatever.
0: And I think what we can see in society right now is a lot of people out there and making the news, making the headlines that are not able to regulate their emotions, like 0.00%.
1: And that's what
0: I think being embodied, that work is so important because we could take care of a lot of these issues we're seeing out in the world. You know, a lot of the shit we're dealing with, maybe stuff from the past. You know, maybe things that we have carried with us from a long time ago, and it's just created this foundation that we keep throwing stuff on top of. And now we're here, and we've lost our mind about somebody cutting us off on traffic. And she gave an example of something that I have learned through another workshop that it reminded me. Of, this is such important work. Is Learning to go back in the past, like visualize yourself, and it may be a very specific situation. Maybe it was a time where you felt shamed or you were abused or whatever that may be. And going back and visualizing like the best version of you, going back in time. This is a great meditation to go back to that little girl or little boy or whoever you are in that moment. And consoling them, loving in that little one, calming her down, letting her know she's not alone. I've got you. I love you. You're safe with me. I've always been here for you. It's like your younger self is so wounded. And this is a really important visual that we can do at any time. Maybe a, a tough memory comes up or you feel triggered. And if you go back and look at a lot of times what triggers us, We can probably go back to a very specific event in our past of where that comes from. And then doing this exercise with yourself and that younger version of you to let that go. That no longer has control over you. It's important work. And this is not taught to us. Like If I could have every flippin' school in this country help teach kids how to emotionally regulate. I mean, of course, it takes us at home to be the examples as well. But our kids are not with us for most of the day. When they're young, one through five or zero through five, then they get to school. They're now there for more hours a day than we get to see them awake, probably. If we could have something in schools, licensed psychologists that can lead kids to help deal with their emotions, and that's part of the curriculum. I don't give two shits about my kid learning calculus. I want him to be able to emotionally regulate himself. And I can only do so much as a parent. You know, they don't listen to anything we say as teenagers. They don't care or dumb. Rarely do I find a teenager that understands what the parent's trying to say or they haven't tuned them out or think they're crazy for suggesting meditation. It takes somebody else outside of the family circle to share that with them coaches,
1: teachers, counselors,
0: friends. Anybody but their parents, probably. So, here's some things she suggests in the book that we can do to help us regulate and handle our emotions. She mentions that when you have a strong emotion, to direct your body towards your, like the bodily sensation that's happening, like what are you noticing? Are you breaking out into a sweat? Do you feel pressure in a certain part of your body? Um, What are you noticing? Anything that stands out, pay attention to it. And the purpose of this is to notice a sensation. It's not to take us away from the actual emotion, but to help us attend to it in a way that helps us move the emotion through us without blocking it, paying attention to what's in the body, where's that at, and just noticing it. And then she says that those emotions signal something in our body. We turn our attention to that. It helps us regulate the emotion because it helps us connect to ourselves because we're paying attention. Okay, I'm feeling this, and this is what's going on in my body right now. This is the reaction I'm having. So you're paying attention. You're making that that cognitive connection to what's happening. And then she says to think of the uh, emotion as a wave. Emotions can rise and fall. And so you can feel it escalating. And when we just sit with it, observe the sensation, eventually you'll get to the other side. Just using that visual as a, as a wave. And I was taught this as well before. I think I mentioned this previous podcast. but. I was taught that picture the emotion coming in as a wave coming up to you. And then as you breathe, you're helping it release back out. And it may keep coming back. You may get hit by this wave 12, 20, 30 times, but it will go away eventually. And you just sit with it and letting it go back out and not trying to run away from it, just sitting with it. So I, I understand her wave analogy for sure. It's this sensation that rises up in us and just eventually you will get to that point where it falls. You'll get to the other side and that's getting yourself back to safety. Another thing she mentions is noticing what your thoughts are doing because sometimes we get confused with thoughts that made us feel that way in the first place. It's like pouring gasoline on a fire because you think of something that made you sad and then you stay in the sadness because you're thinking about the, that thing that made you sad. You kept, you keep thinking about it. You're rehashing it. Maybe somebody betrayed you. And you're rehashing that event over and over. And then there's more sadness. So you continue to stay in it because you're thinking about it. So be careful of your thoughts. Observe the emotion and set the story aside, like how you got there, where it came from. Set the story aside and just be fully present with the the sensation that's happening. And that's it. Let go of the story. And then respond to yourself with compassion. Think of an emotion that surfaces often or one you have a hard time with. Maybe it's fear. And then think about how you would respond to someone that you love if they told you they felt fear. How would you talk to them? What would you say to that person? Your best friend, your sister, your mom, your husband, your kids. What would you tell them? So tell that to yourself. And then she says to get curious about your values and your past feelings. It helps us understand more about ourselves. So how do we respond when we felt you know xyz whatever that feeling is is there a way that i can choose differently the next time so if you have a list maybe of things that you've been feeling lately and if you can look at your responses look at how you've reacted before okay how can i choose differently what can i do instead and that can help you keep from falling back into negative you know or unhelpful patterns and then chapter 7 This is towards the end of the book. This is a really important chapter that I did not realize would be in there. uh, And I'm really glad it was. It's about the body and oppression. And she shares a story, the very beginning of the chapter, of herself being invited to an event. She records a podcast live in front of a bunch of people. And the crowd is mostly white, like 99.9% white. And the person that follows her in the event is a gentleman that is of color. And he was showing a documentary about, I believe, drilling in the Arctic lands and about indigenous cultures. And he got some questions afterwards and she realized, oh my gosh, there's racist questions in here. And he handled it very gracefully. And as they got together afterwards, she asked him some questions. She said, how do you do this? Like you keep educating people about things that he deals with every day that they have no clue about. And he said something that was really, I think, profound. This is his quote. There is nothing quite like being in a room full of people who are the descendants of slaves. Not only is it energizing, but it feels like it connects me to who I am and where I came from. In spaces like that, I don't have to explain what it's like to be me. So he's not referring to the discussion he had after that demonstration. He's talking about How he feels when he's a group of people that he does belong to that are equally oppressed as he has been, generations before him have been, because he feels part of something. He doesn't have to be on the lookout. He can just be himself. And that's what gives him strength to go out and be in places and have these talks and have these questions come at him because he does have a place that he goes to that feels safe for him.
1: But how fucking sad that that energizes him. That's the connector. His his descendants were slaves.
0: And it breaks my heart to read that because that's his truth. And oppression is a form of trauma. It's a collective trauma. And this is very eye-opening. And I want you to think about this when you read this and hear this is she shares there's a study that was out there. It was concluded that oppressed and marginalized groups can meet all of the criteria necessary for a diagnosis of PTSD without actually having experienced a single life-threatening event usually associated with PTSD. So let that sink in. Oppressed people have PTSD symptoms because they are oppressed and they're marginalized. That's their trauma. That's it. And as a global human body, we are the sum of all of our components. I'm going to quote her. because I think this is really important to hear. Humanity functions as a body as well. We are all connected to each other. That means we have a responsibility to be aware of the systems that are hurting one part or different parts of the larger human body. It requires paying attention to how we devalue bodies, our own and others and working to eradicate these systems because of the deadly infections they are to the body of humanity. They affect all of us. Banning abortion, banning care for people that are trans, banning uh, gay marriage, banning books. It affects all of us. So people are doing the banning. It's impacting them. Another quote. Because the body is where our identity develops and resides, we cannot fully be ourselves in the world, fully free or fully safe until our bodies and all bodies can be free and safe. So important. We cannot fix humanity. We cannot take care of mental health. We cannot take care of inequality issues, whatever, if we are not all, especially the people that have privilege. I have privilege if we don't all do our part
1: to make sure all bodies are considered equal. So this is what she shares in response to this. It's important, as that gentleman said,
0: about how he feels energized by being a room full of descendants of slaves. It's essential that those who continue to be oppressed have spaces to meet with people who are similar in identity or experience to work through and name how oppression has impacted them. Freedom and safety come from belonging to a group that validates oppression as real. So as people who are not oppressed, who have privilege, who have power, what can we do? We find books, talks, podcasts, online courses, social media accounts to follow of people who have experienced oppression. We educate ourselves about racism weight stigma, colonization, heterosexism, ableism, to help learn what's the dominant culture has made it hard to see. She also suggests reading a book called My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies by Resma Menakam. It's R-E-S-M-A-A and then M-E-N-A-K-A-M. Or a book called Oppression and the Body, Roots Resistance and resolutions. It's a book by a variety of authors. It's edited by Christine Caldwell and Lucia Bennett Layton. Okay, moving on, past oppression—that's can be a whole conversation in itself. I just want everyone to think about what they've done or what they haven't done in terms of oppression. We are not healthy as a human body globally if anybody is oppressed or marginalized. It comes back. It hurts us all. I'll leave that there. Uh, The next chapter, she calls it the holy flesh. So she has a quote in there by uh, father, Richard Rohr. And he says, we do not think ourselves into new ways of living. We live ourselves into new ways of thinking. And what the premise of that is just, is that living fully connected to the body is about being fully present. The body's not an idea or a series of words. It's an experience. And how you get to that place, what she suggests you can do is to think of a time you felt most alive. Maybe it was zip lining in Costa Rica. Maybe it was snorkeling in Hawaii. Maybe it was watching your child being born. She suggests to then make a plan when you can do that, either that thing again, or something similar to help you feel alive. Our body is an experience and helping it experience life is what we get out of our routine thinking. Getting out in the world and just being, doing, loving life. And this is a, another great quote I loved is all inhales and exhales are doorways to the divine. End quote. Not one of us lives without breath in our lungs. So just by paying attention to our breath in and out, that's a connection to ourself. That's a connection to everybody else that's out there. Because we all are living, breathing souls and bodies. I thought that was really powerful. Just to, to feel connected to somebody else, just taking some breaths, just breathing, that can make you feel part of your body. And then the last chapter is about building a trusting relationship with our bodily selves, and how we can repair that. Talking to yourself, learning to listen, but telling yourself you're sorry for how you've been treating her. She wrote a letter to herself at the end of the book that you can read, uh, which is like can be super helpful, but. When we're able to actually be in relationship with our body, our full bodily self beyond our appearance in a way that's present, non judgmental, and supportive, we can become our best resource through the challenges of life. And when we can deal with stressors as if they're our own best companion, we can understand it better. We can protect ourselves so that no matter what happens around us, you'll always be there for yourself. So Christine Caldwell calls this state of the body bodyfulness. And so her explanation of what bodyfulness is, it begins when the embodied self is held in a conscious, contemplative environment, coupled with a non-judgmental engagement with bodily processes. It's an acceptance and appreciation of one's bodily nature and an ethical and an aesthetic orientation towards taking right action so that a lessening of suffering and an increase in human potential may emerge. Bodyfulness. I mean,
1: that's a world I want to live in. If we can all have those things.
0: That's where I want to live. It's where I want my kids to live. So imagine how this could change so much of how we operate as a society and treat each other. Mental illness goes away, crime goes away, oppression and inequality goes away. When we are ourselves, we're in our own bodies, we are present, we're cognizant, conscious of how we're living, what we're doing, and doing it in a non judgmental, engaging way. I don't know, guys. I think, I mean, embodiment for all of us could be the answer to
1: so much what's going on. And to consider
0: earth, where we live as an extension of ourselves, part of our bodies. If we took care of ourselves and took care of the earth in the same way,
1: imagine how
0: wonderful it would all be. I think this is super important work. At the end of every chapter, she gives you some things to think about, some exercises, maybe things to try. So I highly recommend, I think this is one of those books you'll want to read more than once to keep yourself paying attention. And I think this would be a fantastic book for everyone to read, especially if you're parents, so that you can be an example to your kids of what it looks like to be embodied that is my take on this book. I wanted to give you some snippets of what really hit home for me. And I think they'll hopefully hit home for you, but I highly recommend it's not a long book. It's an easy read and I highlighted shit out of it. So take a look. And I love to hear what you think about the book. If you end up reading it, love to hear your thoughts. This was part of our book club. So if you want to read more books like this with us, with the book club, come and join go through Patreon website and join as a book club member and you guys have a wonderful week and we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you again for being here. I am so grateful for your time. And if you liked what you heard, please head to where you listen to podcast rate and review so we can be found by other people. Please share on Instagram, your social media channels, wherever else you go so we can reach as many people as possible so they can meet these amazing women and hear these conversations. If you'd like to connect further, you can find me over at my website at hallysawyer.com or on Instagram. I'm usually going to be at uh, Hallie underscore Sawyer or The Odd Life, which is this podcast specific Instagram account. All right, have a great day, everyone. We'll see you soon.